0: Welcome to Nellab Spotlight. My name is Lina Bjrkinen, and today's episode is about our recent publication on how our brains separate facts from non-facts, first authored by Mugzim Tooling in the journal eNeuro. So, exactly one year ago, we entered this period of great uncertainty as the coronavirus pandemic started. exactly at that time, I was also starting to feel sick. Um, I suspect that it might be COVID-19, but I really didn't know for sure because we didn't know that much about the symptoms of COVID-19 at the time. So I had these huge headaches. I was exhausted and my heart was beating really, really fast. And it was scary because I didn't know what was going on. Lots of uncertainty, but I wasn't coughing and I didn't have a sore throat, and those were really considered um, kind of core symptoms of COVID-19 at the time. And my doctor didn't have a test to give me, so I really didn't know for sure. Um, So when people would ask about my stage, I would at best say something like, I may have COVID-19. And then several months later from an antibody test, I learned that I actually did have it. So then I would say I had COVID-19 back in March. So in this episode, what we're actually gonna talk about is how our brains respond to language that expresses a mere possibility, you know, conveying uncertainty like I may have COVID-19 versus a fact like I have COVID-19 which you can say if you've been able to get a test that shows that. Um, So human languages have a lot of devices for marking a sentence as conveying a possibility as opposed to a fact. So in English, we have the auxiliaries, may, must, might, so forth, and also like adverbs, like likely, possibly, maybe, and so on. And in formal semantics, These are all called modal expressions, and so in linguistics, we have lots of theories about how our minds represent modality. Um, So in the study that this episode is about, we were interested in identifying neural correlates of these modal or uncertain interpretations And we very much went into the research with the idea that we might observe some reflexes of the brain, kind of calculating all those possibilities that are left open by the modal expressions. And so, as a control condition, we had expressions that just conveyed straightforward facts. But as often happens in research, the brain surprised us and uh, the Kind of robust result that we obtained was really clear and rapid activity increases in response to the factual statements. Um, so the facts drove the brain much more than the uncertain expressions. Um, so what we learned was that when your brain encounters a meaning that, you know, a meaning conveyed by language that's packaged as a fact, uh, relatively large areas of cortex respond immediately, like as fast as 200 milliseconds, like really quickly uh, from the onset of the kind of critical word, which would be something like may, must, or uh, do in our case. Um, And so when we think about what that activity might reflect, uh, one possibility is that it could reflect some type of discourse updating. So when you encounter a fact, you incorporate that fact into your understanding of the situation, whereas with a mere possibility, you you don't do that. And and one um, uh, sort of additional compelling aspect of the study was that we did a follow-up experiment in which we actually embedded the facts of the first experiment inside non-factual contexts. And so what that did is that the the expressions that were formerly facts now actually also became non-facts because of the broader non-factual context. And that eliminated the previous fact effect. Uh, And that was important for us because it showed that the fact was not just linked to the specific lexical items like may or must, but it really had to do with the fact versus non-fact contrast. So here we'll meet to the first author of the study, Maxime Tuling, who's a PhD student in our linguistics department. She originally hails from the Netherlands, and she's co-advised by me and my colleague Elish Kournain, who is uh, our co-author in this uh, work and was really the modality expert of the study. Um, Although I study meaning in various ways, I don't have any special expertise in the semantics of modality. So I actually learned a lot in the course of this study as well, or at least kind of got a refresher of the stuff that I had learned in graduate school uh, and just haven't kind of used in uh, later years. Um, So Magzine is a really fun person, and I think that comes through in this chat. We uh, really just talked at the end of our weekly meeting And it was kind of a pilot try for this podcast um, but we decided to post it here anyway. I think this study is really cool. And Maxim is a really, really creative and talented researcher and also just a very fun and uh, an easygoing person. Um, Okay. I, I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello. Hey, Maxim. Welcome back to my Zoom room. Right. <laughs> we finished our weekly meeting a little bit early, so let's spend a little bit of time now talking about your recent paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you published this a couple of months ago in the journal eNeuro, and it's titled Neural Correlates of Modal Displacement and discourse updating under certainty or uncertainty. There's a little parenthetical there, <laughs> doesn't read very easily. Um, and so this is work we did together with Ailish Kurnane, who's one of my colleagues here in the linguistics department and also Ryan Law um, in NYU Abu Dhabi. And you're the first author and I'm the last author, the sort of senior sponsoring author as the convention is in our field. So we'll go into it in a minute, but let's make sure that people know a little bit about you. So you're a fifth-year linguistic student. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you're a dissertating student. Do you remember your dissertation title? It's actually kind of long. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh,
1: maintaining representations of discourse, representations in children
0: and adults. <laughs> was okay, I have it in front of me. So you passed your proposal defense and so at that point you have kind of a working title. Um, sorry, I did a horrible thing to you there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Magzim's dissertation title is Building and Maintaining Discourse Representations of Factual and Nonfactual Information in Children and Adults.
1: Yes. So okay, that was thinking, a crucial part, the factual and non-factual.
0: <laughs> factual and non-factual, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. But more broadly speaking, uh, in addition to the kind of adult work that this paper addresses, you're also working with children, right? So ultimately, uh, you'll publish... Uh, uh, yes, I also do acquisition work. As well. yeah. um, all right. So since this paper came out a couple months ago, people may be reading it. So when I say people (laughs) may be reading it, what kind of situation might make me use that type of language?
1: Uh, I would say uncertainty or allowance that you allow people to read it since it's open access and available.
0: <laughs> yes, that would be kind of like, you may read it now. Yeah, exactly. It's possible for you to read it. But yeah, so if I choose to say people may be reading it, um, maybe I have a little bit of evidence that someone's reading it, but I don't. but not a lot. I have some uncertainty about that. So how is that different from if I had chosen to say people must be reading it?
1: Yeah. So when you say something like "must," you have just a higher level of certainty. So the
0: evidence that you base your statement on ah, is stronger. Is stronger. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, I have maybe I saw somebody read it, or there's just more more uh, evidence in favor of that situation. Um, and how does how is that different from if I had just said people are reading it?
1: So when people are reading it, normally you only say that if you are certain, so you have seen people read it, uh, or maybe you are a person reading it.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know it for a fact. We have a little bit. Of yeah, that.
1: exactly, it's a fact, it's an assertion.
0: Yes, um, and so this is exactly the phenomena that this paper addressed, right? So you were interested in trying to understand how our brains discriminate between language when, where someone, something is asserted as a fact versus where you're expressing something as just a mere possibility. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about what actually made you interested in this basic question?
1: Um, Yeah, so why it's an interesting thing is because uh, the ability to talk outside the here and now is pretty special among like like other communication systems of other animals. Um, and it requires an ability that is shifting your perspective from the here and out. like you have to sort of like ignore what is really around you to represent the situation that could be, right? And it's representation that could be like, is by definition not really there. Um, so it requires a certain ability that is very interesting to track, to see how our brains are doing it. Um, also unable able to figure out how this develops in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. And it is also something that in a sense, you have to make a decision about every time you speak. So every time you speak or every time you use language, you have to decide whether to express something as really a fact or as just a possibility. So in some sense, uh, in that sense, it's a very ubiquitous part of, uh, part of language. So uh, one of the really challenging parts of the study was creating the stimulus materials. Um, And so here we used a technique called Magnetoencephalography, MEG, that's what we use in most of our studies, and it has really, really good both spatial and temporal resolution, and so in the kind of most straightforward type of MEG experiment, there's kind of a, a point in the expression, or in this case a sentence, in which the uh, kind of critical contrast occurs. And so you created that for this study. So can you kind of give us uh, uh, an example of the stimuli and sort of walk through exactly at what point the uh, uh, the factual versus possibility uh, contrast pertained? Yeah,
1: uh, I definitely can. So uh, we started with like a base sentence and the base sentence was be something like um, night scary swords and then there was a then there's something like following up like extra information. And it was always the same in the different conditions that we have. So it was um, the Squires either do so to like do to the Squires do to the Squires may to or the Squires must do for example.
0: yeah. See, I have the paper here, so I'm gonna. Um, uh, let me use the, uh, your superhero example, is um, yeah. to make sure everybody gets the contrast. So, um, so you have something like superheroes wear masks, so their sidekicks do too. So do is the one that states a fact, and then by just changing that word to may, you create a possibility. So, superheroes wear masks, so their sidekicks may too.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And you did various manipulations on the specific readings of these words that express possibilities, but it turns out those kind of were maybe a little bit too subtle and didn't give you the, the robust effect that we report in this paper. Um, so can you now summarize what was the kind of main finding from this manipulation? So we're measuring the the brain activity millisecond by millisecond, word by word. And then when subjects come to this do versus may versus must site, what, what happened in the brains? (laughs) Yeah. So what we
1: found is that, um, from the moment you hear something like, Uh, do compared to hearing may or must or might. There's a stronger reaction like a stronger elicited response in areas that normally are involved with discourse processing in general. um, For the factual ones so for do more so than um, the modal ones like may or must. And this is pretty fast so this happens started around 200 milliseconds, uh, between like 200 and 400 milliseconds we saw this response.
0: So somehow very, very quickly, these are obviously short words, so your brain can probably process them pretty quickly, but a very rapid increase in activity when you're actually, um, you know, encountering this factual statement. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And it's also important to uh, say that we did two experiments. So you might now think like, oh, maybe it's just because the words do and may and must are just different words. Uh, which of course we also considered. Um, So in a second experiment, we manipulated the the prior sentence, like the one that's in the first experiment was uh, the superhero wears masks. And we manipulated the certainty of this one. So we compared the superhero wears mask versus if superheroes wear masks. So if you have already an uncertain situation, like if superheroes wear masks, it doesn't really matter that the next sentence is also uncertain. Um, uh, Uncertain right? because you're still uncertain, but if you have do in this case, uh, do is not going to give you a certain update, because you didn't know if the prior was already true, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what we actually find is that this updating effect, that's how we call it, basically, of do being more activated than the uh, uncertain statements, that it goes away if you have it building onto something that's already uncertain.
0: Yeah, so we were able to kill the fact. Yeah. <laughs> we were already in an uncertain uh, context. Um, you obtained kind of an interesting localization difference between the first and the second experiment. So the results of the second experiment were similar but not identical to the first. First experiment. Um, so in the second experiment, you created this um, uncertain broader context. Can you say a little bit about that difference and what you think that might be due to? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So in the first experiments,
1: we made a conscious decision to add um, a reference, actually. So the sentence we, uh, the example sentence we just gave here is more of the second experiment, in that there is, uh, there is one Yeah, one statement that is like your knowledge. So if we say like, oh, this um, knight wears masks like this, something that you learn, but in the first experiment we had someone else learn it so it was like, oh, the king knows that the squire wears masks. Um, And we did this because it's good to have like um, an authority figure, or like um, a knowledge, like someone who carries the knowledge for the meaning of the, the may and the must, because we were Disambiguating. Um, but for the second experiment, we got rid of it because we got longer sentences because we manipulated the first part with the it. So we think that it might actually have something to do with that. So in the first experiment, you saw that there was mostly responses in the right temporal um, areas, like lateral areas. And if you know anything about languages that normally actually we see activation in the left side, so that was a little bit surprising. Uh, well, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think if you're really in the business, you know that there's plenty of (laughs) stuff going on in the right side as well. But if you kind of think about the sort of textbook version, yeah,
1: exactly. The
0: brain, yeah, so every time there's activity in the right hemisphere, we maybe like comment on it a little bit more,
1: yeah, exactly. Um, but anyways, like uh, the right temporal um, and lateral like posterior areas are also very much associated with fear of mind reasoning. So the fact that you have someone else that is um, imagining a situation or like you're representing the beliefs of someone else, namely the king. And we think that this might have had to do with um, the effect being more localized in like the right temporal, temporal parietal junction and stuff in the first experiment. Well, in the second experiment, we actually saw these effects in frontal media areas, um, and no longer in the right lateral side. So we didn't like set out to find this finding, um, but we did observe it, and we think that this might have something to do with it. Mm
0: -hmm. So it sort of raises a question for future studies that can really hone in on this idea that when you're Um, adding something to your kind of own belief system, it might have this more prefrontal medial localization, but if you're adding a a, a factual representation into somebody else's (laughs) um, um, mental representation, it might uh, engage these regions that are maybe more associated with theory of mind. That's sort of the speculation that we entertain um, at the end of the paper. Um, are you planning to follow up on this work? Uh, what are your next uh, next steps?
1: Uh, yes, yes we are. Uh, it will be very interesting to see if, um, if you change the source. So now basically we see that um, people are more responsive to factual language than to like possibility language basically. Uh, and this actually made many people ask, like, oh, does that mean that you automatically believe things if it's, like, given to you as? Um, and that's not what we, like, researched at all. But it would actually be interesting to look whether if you get information from our umbrella. So we know that, like, if you are uncertain in the linguistic content, right? So if you have an if sentence, um, this effect can be killed to some extent. And it would be interesting to see what if you know that the information you get comes from our so there is uncertainty about in the sense that you know that what is being said is unreliable. But the uh, language itself actually indicates it's the fact. Um, and it will be very interesting to see if the if the processing of factual information is so automatic that we still still see a difference between fact and possibility there.
0: And this is uh, what has made the current study very interesting in the uh, political climate. Of- of these days where lots of uh, language is packaged as a fact. And so it makes you wonder uh, whether your top-down knowledge about the nature of the source actually affects your brain processing. So that's a very intriguing uh, future question. I agree. Um, All right, well, thank you so much for doing this. uh, Yeah, thank uh, you, too. I'll see you in the hallway in just a minute.
1: (laughs) We're yeah. actually in the
0: department sitting right next to each other in uh, separate offices. Uh, but since we're in pandemic times, we're talking over Zoom. Uh, and <laughs> Audio quality wasn't the best. So hopefully uh, it was comprehensive. Yeah. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that is a wrap from Nell Lab Spotlight.